Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to the seventh installment in our Star Trek retrospective series. Today we are discussing Star Trek Generations. If you have not heard the previous six movie reviews, you'll want to make sure to check those out. Just scroll back through the page on Silver Screen Guide and you can hear those. And we have many other great movie reviews in the archives for you to check out. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Brad. Now, before we talk about Star Trek too much, don't forget to subscribe on Facebook and Twitter. And if you go to the website, you can also subscribe through email. All of those links are in the description below. And if you are looking for some more great bonus content, such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, all of that is in the link in the description below. Very easy to find. It's a great way to support Silver Screen Guide and you get some great extra content as well. Now, Star Trek Generations came out three years after Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. This film released November 18, 1994, and it followed the conclusion of the seven-season TV show Star Trek The Next Generation. So it had been off the air for a little bit, but even in the latter years of the seasons, they had been planning on bringing this new crew to the big screen since the crew from the original TV show was all retiring and would not reprise their roles for a major feature film. This film is directed by David Carson, who mostly just directed television. He did actually direct three episodes of One Tree Hill. Oh, wow, that's interesting. It is kind of surprising. And this was actually his first theatrical film. Beforehand, he had directed four episodes of the TV series. Surprisingly, Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy, who originally played Spock, was asked to direct this film, but he turned it down. Hmm. The writers are Ronald D. Moore, who has written lots of TV and science fiction. He has written some of the Star Trek episodes. He's written Battlestar Galactica, and supposedly he's attached to write iRobot 2. Oh, wow. And Brennan Braga also wrote this movie as well, and he wrote television. Now, Dennis McCarthy is doing the score, and he has done the score for the Star Trek TV show. So it does seem like they're basically taking everybody from TV and bringing them to film. That's not always a good idea, though, Hmm. because TV and film are very different mediums to work with. Right. Now, the current IMDb rating for this film is a 6.6, which is mediocre. It's nothing really that great. Right. Compared to last, the last film had a 7.2. Now, this film's Rotten Tomatoes score is 47%. That shows what they really think. Yeah. Critics didn't like this film, whereas critics loved the previous film at 81% approval. Right. The Metascore isn't too different. This has a Metascore of 55, whereas last time was 65. And audiences gave it a B+. Plus on CinemaScore, which if a movie is good and enjoyable, then it should be at least an A minus. B plus means it's okay when it comes to CinemaScore. And that's actually the lowest a film has received, aside from four years later, Star Trek Insurrection would also get a B minus. And of course, the last film had an A minus. Now, the budget for the film was $35 million. Domestically, it grossed $75.6 million. For a foreign gross of $42.4 million, making its worldwide total $118 million. So, for all intents and purposes, this film did great 
at the box office. It did fantastic. No surprise, it was number one opening weekend with a opening weekend of $23 million. So the top five for that weekend was Star Trek Interview with the Vampire, the Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt film, The Santa Claus with Tim Allen, the classic Lion King, the original, and Leon the Professional, which I've never seen, but I've heard it's fantastic. Mm. Now, as far as this goes in the series, box office-wise, it is 9 out of 13. So it actually did slightly better than the previous film, Star Trek VI, which doesn't really surprise me considering this is really new. The previous six films have been nothing but the original crew, and now people who have loved Next Generation TV show now get to see their favorite characters up on the big screen. Yeah, I'm sure that brought a kind of a curiosity factor to raise its rankings there. And you and I have never seen this film. Well, this was new for me. That's right. I not not only had I never seen the film, I never really uh, saw the series either. I never got into it. I mean, saw bits and pieces here and there, but never got into it. So it was I was really ready to judge this for its own merits. I was too. I did watch the first two episodes of the TV series on Netflix. Their build is one one and a half hour program, which is feature length. Right. The movie isn't well. I should. I don't mean the movie. I mean the TV show that I watched. It's not a movie, it's still very much a TV show, but it did actually help, I would say, a lot in giving me some familiarity with these characters and with what they do. And surprisingly, the first episode deals with this location called Farpoint, and they even bring it up in this movie. Data finally figures out the joke made eight years ago on Farpoint. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. Now, when they were first adapting this film, one of the stipulations that they had was the writers had to make a villain as big as Khan. They wanted to have a Khan villain from Star Trek II. That was kind of one of their goals. We'll talk about that a little bit later if they succeeded or not. Well, listeners, we are going to get into spoilers for this film. So if you haven't seen Star Trek Generations, go ahead and pause this episode, go and watch the film, and come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. 30 years after the events of Star Trek VI, Kirk, played by William Shatner, Chekhov, played by Walter Koenig, and Scotty, played by James Doohan, are entreated to the maiden voyage of the Enterprise B, which is a major public moment. As they set off, the crew is immediately asked to respond to a distress call. Feeling ill-prepared, Captain John Harriman, played by Alan Ruck, at first dismisses the call, but he doesn't want to appear a coward in front of Kirk in the press. Upon Kirk's advice, they travel to the ships in peril, which look to be caught in an outer space lightning storm. Scotty is available to help beam some passengers aboard, two of which are Goonian, played by Whoopi Goldberg, and Tolian Soron, played by Malcolm McDowell. The latter mysteriously cries he wishes to return to the now-destroyed vessel. Due to a malfunction, the Enterprise-B is about to become an early victim of the space storm. But thanks to the heroics of ex-Captain Kirk, the ship is shaved, but not before a blast from the storm destroys a major section of the Enterprise, along with Kirk himself. 78 years later, which would put this 108 years after Star Trek VI, the crew of the Enterprise-D, which are the crew from Star Trek The Next Generation TV series, are aboard an ancient sea vessel to promote Worf, played by Michael Dorn. In fact, they aren't at sea, but are simply on the ship's holodeck. Captain Picard, played by Patrick Stewart, receives a a distress call from the observatory located in Armagosa Star System. The crew rescues the survivors, two of which are Goonian and Soren. 
while Jordy, played by LeVar Burton, and Data, played by Brent Spiner, inspect the observatory, they are attacked by Soren, who earlier pleaded with Picard about not having enough time. Soren launches a trilithium probe at the Armagosa star, causing it to implode. This is all a part of his plan to change the trajectory of the Nexus space ribbon, a dimension beyond time and space where all of your desires and fantasies come to life. Soren, whose species gives him a lifespan of hundreds of years, wishes to enter the Nexus to see his deceased family. Before Picard can stop him, he steals Geordi onto a Klingon bird of prey commanded by the nefarious Duras sisters. Later, Picard learns of his own bad news that his brother and his family perished in a fire. Meanwhile, Soren reaches the planet Viridian 3, where he calculated the Nexus to appear. Picard is dealing with the Geordi hostage situation, which he resolves with a trade. Him for Geordi. The sisters are all too pleased with this because they programmed Geordi's visor to be a spy camera. They use this to their advantage to shoot down the Enterprise. They succeed in destroying half the ship, only to be destroyed themselves. But the flying saucer-like section can detach from the Enterprise, but it crashes onto the surface of Viridian 3. Back on the planet's surface, Picard figures a way past Sauron's force field barrier. The Nexus arrives and with it millions of people perish in the Viridian system. The entire population of the Enterprise is wiped out and Picard is transported into a Charles Dickens-esque London home where he has a wife and many children, which he of course never had, and his deceased nephew is still alive. Gunan appears to tell him if he wishes to set things right, then he must find another who arrived in Nexus as well. Picard transports to the lush mountains of the United States, where he finds none other than Captain Kirk chopping wood. See, 78 years ago, when the Nexus hit the Enterprise B, Kirk didn't perish, but was zapped into the Nexus. Seeing this as a chance to start over in life by proposing to his love and live a peaceful life away from Starfleet, Picard has a difficult time convincing Kirk they must travel back in time out of the Nexus to stop Sauron. This would save countless lives and would give Kirk one last adventure. The two beam out of the Nexus, and in an intense battle they defeat Sauron and prevent the coming of the Nexus, but it comes at a price. Kirk sacrifices his life to stop the event. Picard buries Kirk on the mountain just as he would like. Although the Enterprise D is destroyed, Picard believes the ship name will live on as credits roll. One thing both you and I agreed on while watching the film is it has, at least for me, the best opening of any Star Trek film we've seen so far. I agree completely. In fact, this film opened so well that I was, I found myself going, wow, I wish I'd watched The Generations. I mean, this, and they did such, they really honored the old crew. I mean, bringing them in the way they did and giving William Shatner the opportunity to save the day. That was heroic as well as just, it's the, one of the best transitions I've ever seen from one series to another series where it's going to transition characters. And so that, it was incredible. It hooked me. Sadly, the hook didn't last, but it really did hook me. It hooked me as well. It had the best visual effects. It was great. We've seen so far. And I was surprised to see Kirk, Chekhov, and Scotty come onto the ship. That's how the movie opens. And it was really cool. It was a little hard for us to believe they had aged so well for 30 yes, years. Yes, yes. The perpetual like, Kirk, he never ages, it seems like. I guess in the 23rd century, they got really good topical creams <laughs> <That's right>. or something. <laughs> Nevertheless, it is really exciting that this new Enterprise has a maiden voyage and they're there to honor them. But of course, there is some problem going on and Kirk gets to be the hero. And I did, I was, we were both really shocked that we thought Kirk died that Kirk went out that way. But I yeah. think I was satisfied with that. 
I think I was satisfied because he was such a hero. In that sense, he really died a hero and everything made sense. Because you know he's not going to live forever. And you know that his era of filmmaking is over in terms of Star Trek. They've already went seven years into a brand new series without him. So I was satisfied with that too. But I was surprised, but yet satisfied. I was too. I thought it was quite effective. And even when it does jump 78 years later, they continue to play with our expectations as the Next Generation crew is on a ancient sea vessel. That was another hook. I was I was intrigued by it. I could not understand it. I'm thinking, wow, are they back on planet Earth? And why would all of this be so old? I mean, this is back in the 1800s or something, you know. But uh, it again, it, it was reeling me in slowly. I was liking it. I did too. And another thing I did like eventually towards the end of the film was seeing Picard in his uniform, but in this Charles Dickens world. It was just really different for Star Trek to do something like that. Now, Mm -hmm. I do wish it would have been used more effectively in the film or made a bit more sense. But nevertheless, I think if they did use that as promotional material for the movie, where it's Star Trek Generations, yet they're on a sea vessel or they're in Mm -hmm. a Charles Dickens world, I think that would make for a really interesting intrigue for a Star Trek film. So I do like how they kind of mix the periods, and of course the film looks the best of of any of them. Right. I would say, though, that's probably where my compliments stop. (laughs) Unfortunately, so do mine. Uh, They really, really uh, lost me. It took an abrupt left turn. It really did, and I think one of the, the reasons for that is the writers didn't develop a strong villain with a plot that even came close to making sense. Right. If they were really trying to get that con feel, they failed miserably. And it took far too long. I, I feel like we didn't even get to know Soren or realize his plot until 40 minutes into the movie. Right, right. They could have revealed a villain earlier and then built some intrigue and mystery around the workings of that villain instead of just keeping it a big secret. And of course... It seems like whenever we hit the second act in almost every Star Trek film, it really just takes a nosedive and it's it's time to take a nap. Pacing is problem every time in these Star Trek films. And I really had hopes that it had changed. In fact, I made that comment to you when they were actually backing the Enterprise out of the dock, you know, in that beginning. I thought, wow, that didn't take 15 minutes like. Yeah. (laughs) So they're they're Maybe their pacing will be better here. But nope, it really lost it in the second act. It really did, and for some reason they were kind of bogged down with also other sub subplots that I didn't really care about, such as Data's emotions. He keeps laughing all the time, and eventually it just kind of got to be obnoxious. And Yeah, I think maybe if I had been a hardcore fan of the series, that might have meant more to me. But I, there again, it, it didn't seem pertinent to the plot of the movie at all. And even bringing in the Klingons, just those weird yeah. Klingon women, sisters... They didn't really do much at all except shoot the Enterprise because they kidnapped Geordi. To me, that felt a little shoehorned in there. Yeah, like you had to have an obligatory conflict with a Klingon. I did hear they were from the TV show. That kind of wrapped up their storyline. So I guess if you are a fan, some of this may mean a little bit more to you. But for a theatrical film, it's not meaning very much. So they did kind of have to throw in these other subplots to fill the runtime. And when it did come to the second act, when they try and explain everything to you, and it does, it doesn't make any sense. This whole nexus thing makes absolutely no sense at all. 
where it's some space storm that takes you to some place that you, you can't even understand and then they can leave it whenever they want to. I just don't get that at all. So a lot of those things are, are just bad elements and when you don't introduce your villain soon enough and his what he's going to do and how that'll affect anybody i never felt the gravity of the situation like right. for instance when the death star first blows up uh, princess leia's home world and you hear everybody's like kind of obi-wan said i heard all these voices crying out in an instant and you right. can't even believe this whole planet is gone that's hard to fathom but at least they tried better to to get you to understand that with this supposedly when Soren is doing all this he's uh, millions of lives are perishing because mm -hmm. of it but we never ever see that consequence right. played out so you, you can't even begin to have any feelings towards that and let's just admit it Malcolm McDowell's character Soren is lame it is lame it really is not not a not a great villain at all no I would say he's one of the worst he's one of the least interesting right he just doesn't make sense his story isn't well told enough and i felt like when they did bring back kirk i just didn't like it 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 was too much it's like kirk will never ever stop coming back because they always need him don't get me wrong i thought it was kind of cool to see kirk and picard team up but watching kirk duke it out with this guy and then just dying for it it just didn't feel deserved or it didn't feel good. It didn't. The first death that we thought was a death on the when he was blown out of the ship really was more honoring to his role, I think. It was Instead absolutely. of just this cheesy fight with this 300-year-old man falls to his death almost, you know. It was very cheesy and it it just wasn't meaningful. No. I didn't find any of that to be meaningful. So I was very disappointed with this film. Mm -hmm. What what started off incredibly strong yeah. It became so boring in the second act. I didn't care about this plot. And I know almost every time we talk about a Star Trek movie, we say it feels like a TV episode stretched out right. into... stretched into a full-length movie. To a full-length movie. And I haven't heard a lot of other people say it, but a lot of people said this one felt like it. Mm. And from what I've also heard is the two-part series finale that it aired not long before, which would be movie length. Many people said that is a better, quote, film than this one. Very Much better story. So I'd be interested in watching that. Yeah, I, I think I would like to watch that now that I'm a little bit familiar with the characters. And I got to admit, I felt like Whoopi Goldberg's character was really pointless. I don't even, her purpose was barely served except for mm -hmm. she just was, you know, do ex Whoopi Goldberg, she'd come in at the proper time to save the day or give them what they needed to know. Uh, Some little small piece of knowledge. I did hear that she made a cameo on the TV show throughout seven seasons, so she Very was on there once or a while. Okay. But nevertheless, her character... Her character was a small, yeah, an important part. It was small, and it really only served to enunciate things the audience was confused upon. And whenever you have to have a character tell the audience what is going on that means you're not doing a very good job as a storyteller right right the script is not doing its job by unveiling the story right so one of the rules of thumbs with storytelling is you're supposed to show not tell right create the image create it so it's a mystery they can unravel with the characters together not just oh, I'm going to just sit here and just right. give exposition and tell you. I, I'm just very disappointed with this film. I, I find myself asking the question, what might the film have been like had uh, Leonard Nimoy had a bigger role? He said he turned it down, turned down directing. And I don't know, that's interesting to me that 
what what he might have been able to do more with it. Well, I we'll have never a, know. We'll never know, <laughs> but I have a feeling Nimoy would have done a lot better job. I, I have a feeling that, yeah. We have no reason to think otherwise because, in my opinion, he's done the best films. Right. And everybody's loved it every time That's what he's, he's directed and come on board. Well, he's just, he is Star Trek. I mean, he knows. I mean, he, his persona is, everything about him is Star Trek. So I think he would have done a good job. So, Brad, what is your rating and recommendation for Star Trek Generations? Well, it pains me to say, but I've now entered the realm of not recommending Star Trek films. I've always been a little generous in my recommendations because I was always such an original Star Trek fan, but I'm going to give this a, a four. That's right on par because Star Trek Generations began with my highest hopes for any Trek film. Right. The opening is exciting and meaningful. I'm even intrigued for these new characters. But as with almost every Trek film, the plot falls apart or loses steam in the second act. And once again, they can't have plots worthy of the silver screen. Almost always, they expand TV show plots into feature length, which destroys the pacing of the story. Right. Listeners, I nodded off a bit in the second act. The story became so uninteresting. There are elements of the film I like, but the overall package is a poorly delivered sequel. That worries me for the next three Picard entries. It does. It does. They did not start off on the right foot. Star Trek Generations receives four stars out of ten with a solid not recommend. I've handed out three, four stars so far. And of those, I would rather watch Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home <laughs> before this film because at least... It knew how to work with the three-act structure and actually had comedic moments in a dream team-like fashion. If you do want to know which films in the series I think are worse than this one, make sure to listen to our previous reviews. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us on our review of Star Trek Generations. We want to know what you think, though. Do you like this first entry with Captain Picard? I know some people do recommend this film and do actually enjoy it and like it, and they find Malcolm McDowell's bad guy to be a pretty decent Star Trek villain. We're clearly not in that camp, but if you are, we want to know why you are, so give us your reasons. We're interested to engage with you in talking about this Generations film, which I was hoping would have been a solid transition from the old to the new, but sadly it was quite sloppy. Once again, don't forget to click that subscribe button if you haven't already subscribed to the Silver Screen Guide podcast. And if you want to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and through email so you never miss a beat with what we do. We do not just podcasts, but we also do videos and we also do written articles, guides, movie news, all kinds of stuff. And then if you want access to exclusive bonus content that nobody else can get, then go to our Patreon page where we have multiple tiers for every different price level. That money is not going into our pockets. That money's going into creating a better silver screen guide for you to enjoy on the website. Higher production values, higher artwork with podcasts, and a greater web design. All of that goes to improving the experience for you, listeners. And if you're not able to help us out with your dollars, then you can help us out in a free way. Head on over to the iTunes podcast. Give us a five-star rating. That really does help us get noticed in the film review rankings. iTunes has rankings based upon the type of podcast, and this really does help us get noticed so other people can join the Silver Screen Guide community. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. Brad, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's been great fun, Corbin. Thank you.
next week we will be joining you and i do have higher hopes for next week and i'll talk about that why next time we see you with star trek first contact